I'd invite you to pull out um, your notes section from your rather sparse bulletin this morning. And you can also feel free to open up to John chapter 20, which is where we'll be. And uh, be looking at the topic of doubt uh, this morning. And last week, Kurt shared some things. We're going to kind of continue where he left off a little bit. Now, I love to talk about uh, the topic of doubt, which may seem a little odd because as a pastor... Um, I've really committed my life to promoting faith and um, developing faith in people or encouraging faith in people. But what I've found is this, is that the reason I love to talk about doubt is because in a way, as we get to talk about our doubts and as we talk about doubt in general, it gets past kind of the shiny veneer of our lives and it starts getting real. It starts getting into where things uh, really are happening, where life really occurs and doubt is there. It also leaves room for God to work. It moves out past the realm of I can do this or I can figure this out. Because when you have to deal with faith, you're you're moving out past the realm of where you're really in control or not. And as we talk about doubt, I basically want you to avoid two different extremes that I've seen in people. And maybe some of you here in this room can really relate to, to one or the two of these. One of these is, is, is no doubt. I'm not talking about the band, but the whole idea of just like eradicating it and saying, I'm not going to talk about it, think about it, whatever. And I would say this, that, that not to acknowledge this, this uninvited guest of doubt when it creeps into our life, when it creeps into our walk and relationship with God, I'll tell you what it does. It leads to hypocrisy. If we just shut it out and say, I was taught you're not allowed to doubt. I'm a bad Christian if I doubt. I'm just going to keep it at bay. It keeps you from really getting real, doesn't it? It it basically says there's not a problem here when really there's a festering problem. And we all know from relationships to the health of our body that if you just ignore it, the little warning light on the dashboard of your car, you can put little black electrical tape over it so you don't see it, but it's still there, right? And it's going to cause probably a bigger problem later on. So that's one extreme. Here's the other doubt, or the other extreme of it is all doubt. This is the one who camps out in doubt. And I would say that wallowing in doubt is equally damaging to those who just keep it at bay and never acknowledge doubt whatsoever. So the two things I don't want for you are to be an ostrich or a pig, okay? Don't don't just bury your head and say, no, 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 I'm not going to listen to it. And don't be a pig and wallow in it. That is not God's will for you to wallow in your doubt. Uh, Last Saturday, I had the privilege of going over to the beach with the Hendersons and the Roses. And uh, we've been just kind of talking about this for a while. And and um, and we brought the surfboards and the bodyboards. And it was just an awesome day out there. Dolphins were out swimming with us. I mean, it was one of those great, just uh, amazing days to be at the beach. And uh, as we were out there, it was, it was really perfect because there's kind of a, a, a visual thing you can see at a beach break. And that is this. There's, there's two ways to go out bodyboarding or surfing, at least two ways. Maybe there's more. But one way is to be standing. You can be out there and you can be just kind of standing. And for a while, we were bodyboarding where the water was about to our waist. And as a wave would come along, we'd basically push ourselves off the bottom into the wave. And we had a bunch of, uh, you know, kind of different age groups out there and, and whatnot. And here's some of the, the elements of that. 
Uh, when you see people learning to surf, when you see people bodyboarding, when you see little kids sometimes, you, you, you see them oftentimes in shallower water. And here's, here's the uh, deal with that. You're more in control when you're in shallow water. It's easier to push yourself off into, you know, into the wave. It's fairly painless when you wipe out. You get a nose flush. You get a little embarrassed. You may have a board hit you on the head, but it's relatively painless. And here's the other thing. You can walk into the beach at any time, right? Now, there's a whole different way of surfing, and it's the idea of going out past where you can't touch. Now, when you go... This wasn't taken from last Saturday. Um, <laughs> and the only way you can tell that is there's no wetsuit on me. Um, no, I'm kidding. That's not me. Um, when you go out past where you can't touch, there, there's just a whole different set of things. You're, you're all of a sudden, you're, you're subject to riptides. You're... You're subject to currents happening. You're subject to uh, the fact that you have no firm footing. You're actually closer to sharks because we live in Santa Cruz. That's a factor, right? So it gets a little bit more scary. Going out in the deep water always is a little bit more scary, but I love it because that's where the good rides are, right? And and this whole idea of, of moving out to the deeper water is what Jesus calls us to. There's a great cost to it. I would say that in surfing, here's, here's the cost in surfing of going out to deeper water. You're subject to greater poundings, and there's far more variables that you now have to account for. And as I thought about kind of juxtaposing that to our life of faith, you know what? The cost is exactly the same. I mean, I thought about the same terminology. We're subject to greater poundings when we go out into deep waters of faith, aren't we? It hurts more. And the idea of having way more variables comes into play as well. When you stop having your, your faith reside for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning and you bring it with you into your marriage, you bring it with you to work on Monday morning, when you bring it into your dealings of your wallet and quicken, all of a sudden there's all kinds of variables. We had a discussion today on the way to church and I asked if all my kids had their Bibles with them. And because my kids were born in the flesh and they think more about fleshly things than spiritual things, um, we just have this phenomenon that goes on. They, they remember to bring their Garfield book to the car, but tend to forget their Bible to the car, right? And, and that's just like us. We're not really that different, you know. Um, but we we're talking about some different things. And one of my kids who's out in the back right now, our middle schoolers, by the way, are serving us right now by cleaning up the, the back area. And if you haven't checked it out back there, Go look at it. The weeds are gone, and they're just picking up trash, and they're, they're, they're cleaning the area up. And he said this. He said, I don't really need my Bible because that has nothing to do with, with God out there. And I said, well, actually, actually it totally does. You see, we, we, we bring God into our service, right, of cleaning up the back area. As a men's group, we've, we, we, we talked about this whole idea of inviting God into your 8 to 5 workday. Inviting God into your commute, inviting God into your entertainment. All of a sudden, you're in deep water. All of a sudden, you're wondering, how do I make this thing work? There's a song by Jars of Clay called Frail, and it says this. There's a one line in it that I just love. Blessed are the shallow, a depth they'll never find. There seems to be some comfort in rooms I try to, to, to hide. I recognize that as we move forward in this area of doubt and talk about, some of you in this room are very uncomfortable with that. Some of us have been trained in church, for instance, not to bring that side of it out into the open. When you're around the pastor, when you're around church people, you talk about just the good stuff, not your questions. You don't let the doubt surface. That's where you talk when you want to get real. And I would just say, man, let's, have, let's be a church where we can bring those two 
together and open them up. The Bible doesn't seem to be afraid of that at all. John, the author that we're looking at, doesn't seem to be afraid of it either. In fact, this isn't the first time that he talks about doubt and about faith because they're tied together. You don't have to turn there, but you can just write this down. John chapter 1, way back when, says this, The light of the world, but the world has not understood. That's verse 5. And then in verse 11, it says, His own did not receive him. You know what that means? It means Jesus came and made statements about himself. Jesus came and put himself on display. And people looked at him, scratched their head and said, huh, I doubt it. That's what it means when it says his own did not receive him. You can almost hear it in Nathaniel's remark when he's told about Jesus. Here's what he says. Remember this? They come and say, hey, we found the Lord. We found the Messiah. Here's what he says. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, don't you just hear it? You hear the cynic pouring out of him in a way. Yeah, right. Jesus of Nazareth? There's, there's doubt there. That's just chapter 1. Moving on to verse 4. Unbelief is, is talked about as the sin. Because all healing, all resurrection comes through belief in Jesus. So without belief, without that word there, there's a big problem. There's a block. John chapter 9, blindness is our born condition. And as Jesus heals a blind man, he talks about the fact that we're all born spiritually blind. And it's really a gift through faith that we're given when we have our eyes opened up. Kurt pointed out last week several responses to the resurrection. And, and as I sat there and was just receiving and being fed and taking notes, it just, it just dawned on me as he's walking through different people, and as we know Thomas is coming up next, Now, there's just a wide variety of people sitting in this room. In fact, for just a moment, I want you to turn to someone near you right now. I want you to look at them, smile, and say, hi, you're different. Do that right now. Look at someone. There you go. All right. Hey, stop wrestling in the back. No, I'm just kidding. Here's here's what Jesus is saying. Here's the, the, the big idea as we look at Thomas this morning. It's that Jesus loves doubters, but that he calls them to believe. Jesus loves doubters, but he calls them to believe. Read with me, kind of follow along in John chapter 20, starting in verse 24, and we'll end in a couple verses. It says this, Now Thomas, called Didymus, which is a word that means twin, one of the twelve was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said, this is a good thing to say when you appear to your friends behind locked doors. Peace be with you. Probably said that in response to the looks on their faces. It says, then he, then he said to Thomas, imagine this scene, he goes into a group of 12, and then he directs his attention specifically to Thomas. Here's what he says. Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. And listen to what he says. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The idea of us being different means that this morning as we read those words, as we hear those words, you're receiving it potentially very different from the person sitting next to you. Let me show you what I mean by a little bit. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to call out loud when I point to you like so what the answer is. Okay? And there's one of two, there, there's, there, there's one of two answers for each of these. And you have to participate. It's the rule. Okay, here it is. Just call it out when I point to you. Is this half empty or half full? <laughs> okay, I heard a couple in there. We're warming up. Here we go. When you see a sign like this, does that scream fun or does that scream run? Okay, here we go. You got it in your head? Here we go. Okay, a little bit of a mix. Right here, we see a crowd, crowded environment. Does that scream to yourself party or prison? Okay, here we go. Okay, there's a mix. Some of you are married to the other one. I love it. All right, is this pronounced ketchup or ketchup? I'm not going to do that. There's some things that are just wrong. I mean, who who spells it ketchup? Does anyone say ketchup? That's that's just wrong. We'll, we'll we'll just leave that one there. Some of you, as you hear about doubt and cynicism and skepticism, you just go, "Man, that's not for me. I've never been there. I, I don't know why people don't just get over that. It's just obvious. Just believe." And there's some in this room, I would guess, that would say. Man, those people that just jump in and believe, do they have no brain? Have they never stopped and considered? Does no one feel the way I do and wonder, does this whole thing even add up? I mean, is what we're doing here real or is this just kind of a a game show? What's going on? And so as you read about a, a, a Thomas, some of you just, just rope in with him and you, and you're, and you line up with the way that he feels and thinks. And others of you may be like John that we looked at last week. And it says that the beloved disciple who got there first and outran Peter, remember him? But he didn't go in because he's not as courageous as Peter. Peter goes in. When John looks in, it says he saw and believed. Done. It, it, it all just clicked for him. And so maybe some of you are John in that room. And you're like, Thomas, look, we told you. I mean, you know us. This is the way it is. We're, we're different. God knew that some people in this room and some people in this world are prone to be Thomas-like. Here's what Thomas is like. We know that he's a twin, for instance. We know that he's more on the, the, the melancholy kind of personality. I would say, in a way, he, he might even be called fatalistic. Listen to John eleven sixteen. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, Jesus is convinced he's going somewhere. He says this, well, let us also go that we may die with him. Like thinking, we can't talk him out of it. He's just going to go. Let's just go along. We'll go die with him. I would say maybe Thomas leans toward the unsocial. He leans toward the pessimistic. He leans toward the despondent. Listen to his words in John 14, 5. Jesus telling them, you know the way. He's got his disciples right around. And Thomas goes, Lord, we don't know the way. I mean, he's that kid in your family that, you know, or the brother or sister, or maybe it's you, you know, that's just... Oh, you know, it's probably going to rain if we just go to Disneyland. We should just stay home, you know, and make umbrellas and sell them. I mean, it's just, you know, think, think Eeyore a little bit here. Skeptical obstinance. He says this, 
unless I see this. I mean, he lays out his demands. Unless this happens, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to believe. I thought about a modern context. You know, in some ways, he's the father of emo. You know, he's just, he's that, he's that kid in the youth group that I've had before, you know, that, that, that is, you know, Eeyore personified in, in a person. And this is, this is part of the mix of people that Jesus called to himself. Isn't that awesome? He didn't just bring along shiny, happy people that immediately believed. Jesus, Jesus called a wide spectrum of followers. What I don't want you to miss about Emo Thomas is this. He's courageous and loyal. Think about this statement. Even though there's a sense of hopelessness or fatalism in his voice, he's, he's actually quite courageous and loyal. He really thinks he's going to go die with Jesus, but he's saying, come on, guys, let's go anyways and follow this guy. So there's a real positive, strong side to that. Here's another thing. I would say that, that someone in this mode is filled with deep emotion. They're highly empathetic. In fact, as you read the Gospels, even kind of cursory, you don't have to go super deep with it, what you realize is every one of the disciples scoffed at the resurrection. Remember, they weren't expecting it. No one showed up three days later and they're like, cool, let's see the tomb open. No one's there. The only people there are those coming to finish the the hurried burial process. So when the women come back and tell the disciples, what did they say? You're talking crazy talk to me. They didn't believe it. They totally scoffed. But we don't call them doubting Peter, right? We don't call them doubting Andrew or doubting John. They had to go and see for themselves. Here's what I think perhaps. Perhaps it's not that Thomas's doubt was greater. Maybe it's just that Thomas's sorrow was greater. And he was, he's such a deeply feeling person that to feel the betrayal and the ripping apart of Jesus, to whom he'd been following around and giving himself to for three years, hurt so badly and so deeply that he's now very, very cautious to give his heart over again. I want you to think about a cat versus a yellow lab. If you wrong a cat, look at that cat. I mean, both of these cats are looking right over here, kind of, you know, at me, let's say, or, or over here, let's say, right? But the cat's looking at you like, I've got a list a mile long of the ways that you're a lousy human being and owner. I'll do that when I feel like doing that. Some of you are like, that's why I hate cats, you know? The lab can't remember more than like two seconds ago. And, and even with that, you whip out a ball or a piece of beef jerky, and he's all over it. You're his best friend all of a sudden. I mean, let's just say it. Some of you in here are yellow labs in your relationships, in your walk with God, in the way that you grow in your faith. Some of you are cats. Some of you are uber cats, right? And you take those tra- traits kind of to the extreme. In this instance, I would say this, that his emotion his deep feeling, his melancholy kind of wiring that God hardwired him with had gotten the better of him. There's strengths and weaknesses to all of our character traits that we have in this room. And if you're married to someone who's opposite of you, on your good days, you see that and celebrate it. On your bad days, you fight it and you get frustrated by it. On this day, his emotion betrayed him. I would say on this day that that uh, it, it blinded him to the testimony of his friends. He's got a close circle of friends who love him and who are with him. And it's just blinded the, 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 the testimony of them. In essence, he's calling them out as liars too by not believing them. I mean, a whole week goes by. 
There had to be parting and celebration and all kinds of discourse. But Thomas seemed to stay out of the party for at least an entire week before he could see it for himself. It actually also blinded him to the words of Jesus. His emotion, his, his deep loyalty and feeling of betrayal got the best of him because he wasn't able to go back and remember the things that, that, that Jesus had said. So often through John, remember John's given us editorial comments that said, after Jesus rose from the dead, they remembered the words he said. So imagine Easter Sunday morning, resurrection, an entire week of dialogue. What are they talking about? The resurrection of the dead, right? They're not just going on with their regular work week, I wouldn't imagine. And in all of that, I think his own brain, his own logic side of it is being totally clouded because of his emotion. And yet Jesus, ever the high priest, as Hebrews 4 talks about, he's sympathetic to Thomas. And as he comes and addresses Thomas, it's basically that he meets him right at his point of weakness and doubt. We don't read about a rebuke. I think that Jesus knows that the point of his error is connected with his deep love for Jesus. We're going to look at this next week a little bit. But there's many different kinds of unbelief. And Thomas's unbelief actually was tied deeply into his deep love for Jesus. And so we don't really see a rebuke. Instead, we see personal tender care right to him. Verse 27, it says that he offers, he offers peace collectively, but then he offers proof specifically to Thomas. Goes from the general, peace to you, and I want to offer you proof. And he meets him at exactly point by point what his questions are. I want to see this. I want to, I want to see those. I want to put my hand in his side. It's a little gruesome. His comment being, I was there. I saw him die. If he's really alive again, we'll see evidence of that. Jesus comes and he point by point provides him with that. But then he leads him forward by saying these words, stop doubting and believe. Do you see that it's not God's will to wallow in doubt? It's not God's will to never talk about doubt. It's not God's will that you just sit and camp out in doubt because that would bring the whole community down, right? And it's against God's will. So he calls him on. Jesus loves doubters, but calls them to believe. We say this at our church a lot. We say it this way, come as you are, but don't stay that way. That's the same idea. That's what this is all about. Come as you are. Jesus says to, to followers through the ages, if you're cynical, if you're skeptical, if you're profane, if you're irreligious, don't wait and get cleaned up before you come to church. Don't wait and get cleaned up and straightened out and everything figured out before you begin to walk with me. Come as you are. Jesus loves doubters. But instead of just coming and sharing our collective ignorance about that and sharing our collective wallowing in self-pity or self-denial or doubt or whatever might be there, he, he grabs our hand and says, no, 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 let's go forward. And he keeps this call in front of people. Stop doubting and believe begs this question why is faith such a big deal does it simply annoy that we don't believe him i mean frankly let's just be honest i get kind of annoyed when my kids ignore me if i'm talking to my kids and they just flat out ignore me that 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 bugs me is that where god's at with this is he up there and he's just like man they're not trusting me it just kind of ticks me off 
Here's why faith, here's why belief is so foundational to everything that goes forward in the life of a believer. Hebrews 11.6, just jot these things down. Hebrews 11.6, it says the only way to believe or the only way to please God is to have faith in him. It's impossible to please God without faith in him. That's pretty important. John 3.16, John 11.25 spells out that the only way to eternal life is through belief in Jesus, his son. There's no side entrance door for those who are kind of skeptical. I'm a rationalist. Is there a different way for me, please? I need the shorter line. I need to do some algorithms and figure some of this out scientifically. Jesus puts it quite simply. He's a gate. He's the only gate. The Bible actually spells out that only a few ever find it, in fact. This life of faith, this entrance to life through faith. And more than just a starting point, it sustains us in the God life. Man, there's just so many examples we could go through, but I'll point out a couple. It assures our success. Healings, battles, the moving of mountains. Don't be afraid. Only believe. These are the things we read about from the Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament. I warned you at the start, we're out in deep waters now. Because right away, people say, man, I have prayed, Dave. I have prayed for success in this area, for healing in this area. You know why the stories of the Old Testament and New are in there? They're for us. They're they're to illustrate. There's some people going through some very rough things right now in this room. Some of them I know about. Some of them turn to a book like Job and say, man, I need to absorb a book like Job. What you find in Job is not every last answer spelled out, right? Instead, what you find is a sovereign God who is in control and does have you in his loving hand as you read some stories in the old testament uh, you can write down second chronicles chapter 2 verse 20 that's the idea that without faith we're not going to win this battle but with faith we do win the battle you could write down uh, mark eleven twenty-two, luke eight fifty, jesus constantly calling his disciples believe Believe, believe, don't be afraid, just believe. And that's what we're called to do as far as our marching orders go. It's also a defensive weapon. Ephesians 6.16 says this, Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. How are you using that defensive weapon in the spiritual battle right now? When doubts come, When arrows of doubt come, do you guard it with faith? Or do you make little targets and welcome it and kind of keep the fire going? That's what this is talking about. Faith is also essential to prayer, to communication, to our very lifeline. If if you have no faith, then your lifeline is severed as you walk through this life. James chapter 1 verse 5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom... I won't won't ask for a show of hands, but think about this. Do you need wisdom in some area of your life this week? Right now? Yes. The answer is absolutely. I mean, that's a that's 100% of us. Because we're bound by time and space. We, We can't see very far ahead. Of course we need wisdom. So maybe rhetorically, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all 
without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Goes on to say this, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The Bible seems to put a pretty big premium on figuring out our doubts, of going after them and not letting them just camp out with us for the rest of our life. Unbelief is a rejection of the saving truth of God. In fact, if you think about it, unbelief in essence is probably our deepest and biggest impact wound that we all inherited from Adam and Eve. Right? It's the sin in the garden. Did God really say? That's the seed of doubt being planted. Didn't smack him over the head with a two by four. It was a little more subtle than that. Did God really say? Is this this really God's word? Is prayer really effective? Does Jesus really ask you to do this or that? And it's a subtle departure. I suppose we could say it this way. Jesus loves doubters by calling them to believe. He loves doubters so much that he calls them to belief because that's their greatest need. That's the starting point of everything else. If you think about the word emergency, it's a sudden crisis that requires action. If we could see something going on in our physical bodies and there was blood and it freaked us all out a little bit, we got a little bit lightheaded, we would realize this is an emergency. This cannot wait. We can't just put this off. When we went through John chapter 4, this was the title slide for it, that Jesus Christ is our our MD. He's the healer. And this sickness of unbelief actually is an emergency. John chapter 6, the crowd asked Jesus, catch this, verse 28, what must we do to do the works that God requires? We're talking about the requirements of God here. Here's Jesus' reply. The work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. Do you see how foundational this is? Do you see why we always bring it back to Jesus? Do you see why the resurrection and the cross are so vital to what basis here? This is what God requires. It's to believe in the one that he sent. That's Jesus. Here was their response. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give us that we may see it and believe you? There it is. We want a sign. Give us a sign. Jesus is so used to this. Show us a sign and then we'll believe. Am I off now, Jeff? Am I good? Okay, we'll keep going. Um, In this particular instance, we won't have you turn there and look it all up, but Jesus knows from a long period of time of God showing miraculous signs to the Israelites that unbelief isn't eradicated simply by seeing more and more and more signs. There's a certain folly to this idea of miracles and show us a sign and and we want to see it. In fact, I would say that God rarely provides the details just to satisfy our curiosity. Look back in John 20 and look at verse 29 for a moment. It says, then Jesus told him, we're talking to Thomas again here, because you have seen me, you have believed. You have not seen and yet believe. I really pondered that a lot this week. What blessings do I possess as one who has not had the opportunity to physically touch and see Jesus? And there are some. And as I began to think on that and meditate on that, 
we're going we're gonna to explore that a little bit next week in the service. Jesus knows that the past path of blessing is the path of faith, but he loves doubters. He loves us. And he comes alongside of us. You think about Thomas and the fact that he required physical proof. And then you think about the fact that God loves doubters like Thomas, but he also loves doubters through the ages. In fact, he actually provides the Thomases through the ages a written account of Thomas's account so that they can look at that and identify with him. Say, man, I was a Thomas. Aren't you thankful that God foresaw the need to put Thomas's testimony in there? I would venture to say this, that names, faces, styles, and, and, uh, and, and things like that change drastically. But I think that the questions and the answers are remarkably the same through the ages. They're formed in different ways. People ask them at different times. But the doubts and things that arise in your mind have been going on through people for centuries. And yet God has sustained his people. So let's close with this. How do I get unstuck? There's a great prayer. I love it. This man says to Jesus, he says this, Lord, I do believe. What a great little simple profession. Maybe it's mustard seed faith. Lord, I do believe. And then he says this, help my unbelief. Isn't it true that belief and unbelief live side by side in your house? I mean, in the rooms of your heart, they're just there. They're both there. And prayerfully over time, doubt begins to shrivel as God fills your life with light and with truth. And as you begin to to focus in on what God's told us already in his revealed word and what the Holy Spirit illuminates as you go through life and walk with him, that doubts begin to shrink. But they always coincide. They always live side by side. And so pray that prayer this week. Lord, I do believe. Confess with your mouth belief in the Son. But then just get real with them. Help my unbelief. Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. What if you started your day this week that way? Before you got out of bed, you just said, Lord, I do believe. I want you to know that today, before my day really starts. But help my unbelief. And let that just begin to kind of guide some of your focus this week as you go along. Getting out of the skeptic take. Here's Paul, Acts 24, turn there. It's the next book over, shouldn't be too many pages. Here's Paul answering critics. His life just was all about answering critics. That's what Paul was all about. And if you read with me in verse 10, he's brought before this ruler named Felix. And follow along, he says this. These Jews have come and they've got all these accusations coming to him. And verse 10 says this. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation. So I gladly make my defense. He steps forward and makes a defense for gospel. Verse 11, you can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up the crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. That's just, that's just squelching uh, these initial uh, false accusation, accusations that are brought, brought to Paul. He says, look, you can go easily verify that. Verse uh, 13 says this, And they cannot prove to you the charges they are making against me. However, I admit 
that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. <clears throat> and I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. You know what Paul did? Paul went to this governor and he gave, he gave his answer to the critics. He gave his answer to his accusers. And he focused it really on three things as I see it. Jesus, if you read about following the way, capital W, that's talking about those who are, that's the, that's the, the pre-name for Christians. Before they called it Christians, they said, these followers of the way. They didn't even know what to call it. But it's because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they've capitalized that. He keeps it focused on Jesus. He talks about his belief in the Bible. When he says, I agree with everything about the law and the prophets. You know what that is? That's the Bible that they had up to that point. Pre-New Testament. They're living the New Testament right now. Jesus, the Bible, and the resurrection. You see that? That's how he answered his accusers. He didn't go into 900 different things that he could talk about. Here's what I would throw out to you. For those of you sitting in this room and you have huge doubts, I would say go back and focus on those three things. Jesus, the Bible, and the resurrection. For those of you sitting in this room wondering how to, to speak with and get into dialogue with and answer your accusers and answer the cynics and answer the doubters in your life, First of all, do what Jesus does. Love them enough to bring them to belief. Don't do it to win an argument. That's losing the war, right? Love them enough to engage with them. And then keep it focused on Jesus, on the Bible, and on the resurrection. Those are three great areas to keep bringing it back to. Well, what about DNA testing? And I don't know about that, really. But let me talk to you about Jesus. What about the, the, the creation of the world? Was it a literal seven days or... You know what? I have some questions there too. But let me bring it back to, to this. And keep bringing it back to those three things. I want to invite um, Greg and Tracy up for a moment. And um, we have a little announcement for them. Uh, and while they do that, I want you to just think about this. If you're plagued by doubt, I challenge you to pursue answers. If you're out in the water and you're out surfing... And you start to get yourself, you're out in the deep water, just like the pastor said you should do. And you start to, to kind of drift. Um, yeah, come on, come on up here, guys. You start to drift and you're just being carried out by a riptide or whatever else. You don't just sit on your board and go, well, I should be in shipping lanes soon. This should be fun. You fight it. You start to struggle. You start to pursue truth. You start to get out of that. I've invited Greg and Tracy up because um, Greg Holsclaw here is a guy that, um, how long have we been coming to the church now? Okay, about a year ago, this guy shows up and he sat right back there. And I knew Greg from a while back. He was in a, a junior high group that I used to lead a long time ago, before I had gray hair. And Greg and his wife, Tracy, showed up and we began a process with him. We didn't know we were beginning a process but what began to, to pour out of Greg and Tracy's heart was that this is part of church. And what goes on in homes all around our church midweek, what we call community groups, is the other part of church. 
And as I began to talk with Greg and just see the ways that God had led him in his life and how he had, he had guided Greg and now Tracy into ministry in this way, it was such a fit for what we're doing here at the church. And Greg and Tracy have now been involved uh, and plugged into a community group for almost that entire time. Greg's been with me in a men's group for much of that time. And beyond that, we've been dialoguing a bunch, and there's been a bunch of behind-the-scenes work going on. And not that long ago, he came before the elders, and we as leaders in this church are excited to announce that Greg is going to be our new community group's director, which means this. We, we feel it's so imperative, so important about community groups that we need someone thinking full-time. Greg is gifted in other ways that we're not using him in very intentionally to keep him focused on community groups. What you can expect from Greg as a community group leader is support and encouragement and visits and talking and an idea bouncer offer and a prayer warrior. And as you have ideas and thoughts about community groups, I wanted to put a face and a name together for you. So A, you can be praying for these two as they dive into the deep waters, as they dive into the trenches, and they get to work battling spiritual battles in the lives and hearts of people. One of the things, too, that we're really thankful about is that um, just, I don't know, maybe a month ago, they started a young adults community group. And what's fantastic about that, here's one of the distinguishing factors that you know you're leading a, a, a young adults community group. How many of you who host, how many of you host a community group or have hosted one before? Raise your hand just really quick. Okay. You can put them down. You know that you're hosting a young adult group when it's one in the morning and they're still there. That's the difference, okay? And what's awesome about that is that they still want to be there at Greg and Tracy's place. And they're, and they're talking life and they're living life together. And so right now, I just want to um, say a word of prayer uh, for, for Greg and for, and for Tracy. Greg, anything you want to say? This is on the spot. This is how you, this is how you put someone on the spot about community groups. No, I just thank you for the opportunity. I love the church. been talking with you, uh, being in town Christian community group for a long time and, and in the men's group. And we just, uh, we've been doing community groups with, the, with college people or mixed group, generational groups for parts of 10 years. And we just, that's really where we think God's always called us when um, we move. We were in Santa Cruz, and we just felt God wanted us to find a local church now to San Jose. And, you know, as I said, I knew, I knew Dave, so when I saw he was, you know, starting this church over here, I just dropped in, and it just everything connected. And, mm. and we really just felt like, you know, we want to start a community group, but just be involved as much as we can, serving and, as you said, praying for and, mm. and just joining alongside with the, the journey that Neighborhood Bible Church is on. And we're just mm. glad that we can, we can join in and serve this way. Awesome. Hey, join, join with me in prayer. God, I thank you for Greg and for Tracy <clears throat> and, God, the way that you have worked and are working in their lives. Uh, Lord, for the specific needs that you and them know intimately, God, uh, we just commit those to you as a whole church. And, Father, I thank you that Greg and Tracy haven't waited for a title to begin serving and begin rolling up their sleeves and, and um, just investing and shepherding people. Father, I pray your blessing on them. I pray your protection on their marriage. I pray, Lord, for community groups as they move forward, Lord, that you would expand uh, the scope and the depth of that ministry, Lord. I thank you so much for the vision that you've given to Greg about community groups and the directions he's wanting to take us. And, Lord, we do pray for, um, we, we, we pray for sheep, God. We pray for uh, people in the neighborhood who aren't, 
aren't in a community group, who never have a place to, to dialogue about their doubts and their fears and their shame and the healing that they require. God, I pray that you would just go before and bless this effort in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you give us two a hand? Thanks, you guys. <clears throat> Let me invite the band up right now and, um, and, and close with this idea that God calls us through the shadows of doubt and not to the shadows of doubt. Here's what I mean by that. Oftentimes, uh, God takes his servants through some really dark times, such that, as Kurt mentioned last week, when the storms do come, we can sing that song we just sang with confidence. You brought me to the rock on which I stand, and I know it's there, and it's firm, and I'm yours forevermore, no matter what comes. He calls us through the doubt. He calls us to sit there and out That's not what he has for us. Some starting points. The Bible. Why should I believe it? Does it contradict science and rational thought? Is it accurate? These are great questions. Jesus. Did he really come from God? Is he really the only way? Should we really worship him? Where is he today? Those are great questions. The resurrection. Did it really happen? Does it matter today? What really was accomplished on the cross? In about a month's time, right now, a lot of behind-the-scenes work is going on, but in about a month's time, we're going to have a major on-ramp to some new community groups that are out there. We need both servants who are willing to roll up their sleeves and walk alongside people, and we need people who are needing to come and dive into these kinds of questions. We want to we talk about life. We want to promote faith. And that involves not just one person once a week yapping at you from up here. And you all look at the back of someone's head and listen. But rather that we're around in a circle and we're walking through it together. Let me pray and then we'll do some singing. Father, thank you for music. I thank you for that we're about. Lord, just the thought of being overwhelmed such that he cries out, my Lord and my God. Lord, I pray that you would help it stick in our heads that you love doubters so much so that you call them to believe. Father, for those who maybe have been playing a game for a while about their fears and their doubts, I pray, Lord, you'd use this time right now to weigh heavy on them and to bring their questions and to get into coffee shops and into the homes and lives of people that they respect and begin the dialogue. Thank you for your word, the way you've revealed it to us. We love you. In your name we pray.